This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, again to where? Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And as you're finding that, uh, let me just say that Rabbi Joseph Tolushkin, uh, he says about the Ten Commandments, he said they're the most famous document in the Hebrew Bible, and it's generally regarded along with the monotheism, belief in one God, as the Bible's most important contribution to Western society. Now, I would say that what Christ did and what Christ says is the most important contribution. But still, as a rabbi, he does have a point. Because after 3,000 years, we're still dealing with the Ten Commandments. It should therefore come to no surprise to us, I suppose, that these moral laws in an amoral society should find many objectors and rejectors. In America... Atheists are hard at work trying to remove every trace of the Ten Commandments on public buildings. One after the other, they're going on the attack. In town halls, in courtrooms, in schools, wherever, they want rid of the Ten Commandments. Why so? Why so? Well, because the Ten Commandments confronts and affronts uh, their lifestyles, which are very permissive and so-called progressive, that they want to live openly without any kind of criticism whatsoever. And so therefore the Ten Commandments confronts that completely and they want rid of it. Do you ever wonder why God chose ten? Why not fifty? I mean, there's tons of commands in the Bible apart from the ten. But why these ten? Specifically, I think it's because these ten are crucial to all of our lives, how we live them, how we govern our lives. Uh, not only our lives, but the lives of those that are around us, those whom we live with, those whom we love, uh, the lives of our community, those who we live beside, the lives of our nation even. And so I think that God purposefully he didn't just pluck these out of the air. He just didn't he randomly pick them. He chose them with purpose in order for our lives to be regulated spiritually, morally particularly, and how that, that would help everyone around us, including the very nation that we live. Every nation that rejects the Ten Commandments ends up in serious, serious trouble. Every nation. So following on from our message this morning about the law, which these Ten Commandments are part of the law of Moses, then the question is asked, are we obligated to keep them? Since they're part of the law of Moses, which has been fulfilled since Christ came. So we certainly know that the civil law and the ceremonial law has no jurisdiction over the New Testament believer. We are completely free from that forever. But what about the moral law? What about the Ten Commandments? Well, are we free from them? Ah, <coughs> uh, well, technically, 
because they're part of the Mosaic law, technically, then they technically were free from them. <laughs> technically. But are we really? Are we free to break them? I don't think so. Because Paul answers that very question in Romans 5. Romans 5.20, verse chapter 6, 1 to 2, he says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So in other words, if the law is passed, including the moral law, well then, why not just live whatever way we like? Why not go out and commit adultery? Why not lie and steal and cheat? Because after all, grace is so wonderful. Grace is so good. Grace will cover it all. There's actually people today who believe that. So-called Christians believe that. Because grace is so wonderful, it doesn't matter what you do, grace will cover it. Paul says, certainly not. Absolutely not. So is there a dilemma here? Well, we know that morality exists, doesn't it? See, ever before the law was ever given, you remember Joseph went into Egypt as a slave, sold by his brothers into slavery. You remember how uh, Potiphar favored him and as a slave put him over all of his household. But Potiphar's wife also favored him in another way. In fact, she continually, could be used the, the parlance of today, she continued to hit on him. And, and he wasn't having it. But day after day after day, she came and says, lie with me. But he said, in the end, he ran from her. But he says, no, I cannot do this. I cannot sin against God. I cannot sin against my master. That was before the law. But because he loved God, it was already in his heart. Not to do that. He knew instinctively not to do that. But the problem is, by the time you read the Ten Commandments given to Israel, after 400 years in Egypt, uh, much of that had gone from their lives and they needed to be reminded of the law of what you cannot do and what you can do. And so God gives them these 10 specific commandments that covers every area of our lives. And so Paul in Romans 7:12 says, "Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good." Two verses later he says, "The law is spiritual." So there's nothing wrong with the law. Absolutely nothing wrong with the law. Remember, it's God's law. The problem is we can't keep it. That's the problem. We cannot keep His law is perfect, as I said this morning. His standard is so high that we cannot keep it perfectly. We can't do that. And so, therefore, it condemns us. It shows us that we're sinners, and it points us to Christ, who is the Savior, who saves us from our sins. So what you find then as you read through the New Testament is that Jesus and the writers, all of them one way or another, they teach us to do these very same commandments. The New Testament tells us not to steal, not to lie, not to murder, not to envy, not to covet, not to commit adultery, <coughs> to honor our father and our mother. You'll find this all throughout the New Testament. In Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I would have not known sin except through the law, for I would not known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. 
So, so much for those who say, forget the Old Testament, it's no longer relevant, don't even bother reading it, just stick to the New Testament, you'll get nothing out of it, it'll do you no good, so much for that nonsense. Jesus, the apostles, the writers, all quoted from it, and all looked at it too. In Galatians 6 and 2, and 1 Corinthians 9, 21 and 22, Paul then speaks about another law, he calls it the law of Christ. And this is the law of love that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 22. Remember when he was asked that question, we read it this morning. Master, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. First great commandment. And the second, he says, it's like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the, on these two hang all the laws, uh, all the law and the prophets. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. This is the law of Christ. This is the law of love. Loving your neighbor as yourself, even James, James 2 and 8, he calls it the royal law according to the scripture. By the way, if you ever are talking to a self-righteous person, a self-righteous person is a person who feels I don't really need all this business about being saved or born again because I'm a decent person. And I know that I'm not perfect, but I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed any of the big sins. So I, I know God will accept me because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm decent and I'm good enough. See, that's self-righteousness. And so, if you're speaking to a self-righteous person, before you point them to Christ, you've got to point them to the law. Unless they see themselves as a sinner before a holy God, then they will never see the need for a savior. A man whose house is in fire, if he doesn't know it's in fire, he'll not be looking for somebody to come and rescue him. But if his house is in fire, and he knows his house is in fire, then he'll welcome the rescuer to come. <coughs> And so a man or a woman who knows that they are sinners, that they're bound by their sins, that they will appreciate the need for a savior. You remember the, the story that Jesus told about the scribe, uh, sorry, about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple praying. And how that the, <laughs> that old Pharisee, he says, Lord, I thank you that I am not as others. <laughs> He says, I'm not an extortioner, I don't cheat, and I, I, I tithe, he says, and, uh, and he says, I, I go to, uh, you know, he went over the whole things about the law that he did. And he says, I'm not like that old tax collector over there. But the old tax collector over there, Jesus said, he, he couldn't even lift up his head. He was so ashamed of himself. And he beat his chest, he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, which one of those do you think will go home justified? <laughs> Not the one who felt he was already saved by the law, but the one who felt he needed Christ to save him. The one who felt he couldn't keep the law and he had broken the law of God and he needed forgiveness for that. And so a self-righteous person, they don't need the Savior because they don't think they need saved because they don't think they're bad enough. They're not like that other man up the street. They're not like that old drunkard down the road. They're not like that person caught in drugs. They're not like that one there that's an illicit lifestyle. No, no, they're half decent, you see. 
And so the law of love, the law of Christ, the royal law, call it what you will. But what does this look like in practical terms? Because the news writer, the New Testament writers, they flesh this out and uh, they take these moral laws and, and they flesh them out for us so that we begin to understand them. And so it's very evident in the New Testament that we're taught not to do any of these things, to lie or to steal or to covet or to, not to dishonor our parents and all the rest of it. But, and here's the big but, but we're not, to, we're not required to do them as part of the old covenant. We're required to do them because it's part of the new covenant, the law of love the law of Christ. And because it's incorporated in that, then we are required to do it. So we can't get out of it. But Jesus said that we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his love working through our lives. Because if we love, then we'll not cheat, we'll not commit adultery, we'll not covet our neighbors, we'll not lie about our neighbor, we'll not dishonor our parents, we'll not dishonor God if we love. And so that's why Jesus sums it up and he puts it into love. He summarizes it for us. So with that in mind, then let's look at these 10 commandments. And as I said this morning, if I was going to do these rightly, then you'd probably have to take a whole sermon on each one of them, which we're not going to do. So let's just kind of look over them uh, briefly tonight. Verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. I say, well, David, that's, I understand that, because those Jews, they were in Egypt 400 years. They were living cheek by jowl with people who were ranked pagans, who worshipped many gods, who were highly superstitious people, and so I understand why God said that to them. And no doubt after 400 years, some of those Hebrews was already worshiping Egyptian gods. We know that whenever they entered the Exodus and, and, and they weren't long into it, they wanted to make a golden calf like they had in Egypt. And so some of them had been already compromising. And God said, no, it's finished, it's over, you can't do this anymore. And I'm telling you, you have no other gods before me. Now there are people around the world today, animists, and they worship the rocks, they worship the river, they worship the trees. Then there's people into ancestral worship, they worship their ancestors. And then there's people into all other kinds of gods. And you say, well, that's okay, that's the way out there, uh, you know, in those, in those pagan lands. But in Western society, well, we don't do that, but we have our own gods. We have our own gods. Whatever whatever we begin to put before God becomes our God. It may not be an idol you set up in your windowsill. It may not be a little bit in the corner, but it's every bit as much a God as that. That's, if we, whatever our, we spend our time and our energies and our passions which oftentimes we have to do to accomplish anything, but we can take that one step further and it becomes between us and God. It becomes more important than God and the things of God. Then it becomes an idol to us. Then it becomes another God that he doesn't want into our lives. 
So it doesn't have to be a little item. It can be, uh, it can be anything. Anything that we find is diminishing our desire for the things of God, and we put it first before God. And let me tell you something. This is tough because you're going to be tempted to put things before God. Right back in the Garden of Eden, what was that temptation that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with? Hmm? Has God said? And then he says, go ahead and partake of this fruit, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You'll be your own God. You see, here's the problem with all of us, all human beings, is we want to be our own God. We don't want any God telling us what to do. We want to be our own God. We want to sit on our own throne. We want to, we want to have our lives lived our way. And so that's going to be a hard one to do. There's going to be lots of occasions when you will have the opportunity to say, either I put God first or I put this first. And my guess is that all of us at some point, even in our Christian lives, has come to that place where we have to decide, it's either this or it's God, but it can't be both. We'll have to make a choice here. And it's the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a tough one. And all of us will be tested on it one way or another. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, generations that is, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now there's, there's, there's two things you can see here wrapped up in this he said well David I, I, I don't have any carved images there's no Buddhas in my house there's no icons there's no idols I don't have that but you see an idol could be made of steel with four rubber wheels on it a, an idol could be anything and if we're not careful, we begin to worship things and stuff. And that becomes a danger. Another way to look at this also is this. God doesn't want any idols. You see, do you ever wonder why there's never, ever, ever been a picture, an image, a carving found in antiquity of the Lord Jesus. Any images we have of the Lord Jesus, it's been in our imaginations. That's all we have to go on. But we don't know. We don't know, was he six foot two? Was he five foot eight? We don't know. Certainly he must have been Jewish looking. But that's about all we know. But nothing else. Because God didn't want any carved images why do you think God buried Moses and nobody could find him? Because they'd have made an idol of him. He didn't want that. But how, how, could we, how could we carve an image of God? How could we do that? Where would you begin to start? You know, 
You think of the great cathedrals around the world, and we understand why. People make them great and large and huge with big vaulted ceilings and big spires and all the rest of it. And you go in and you look around, and it's magnificent. The architecture is magnificent, no question of that. And we understand they built that to reflect, they say, the glory of God. But it's a very, very small thing. The God who spoke the very stars into existence. The God who carved out the Grand Canyon, who made the Pacific Ocean. The God who did all of that. How, how are you going to build anything that's going to reflect the glory of Almighty God? You can't do it. He's too big. He's too majestic. He's too awesome. You can't do it. But you see, religion wants images and icons and statues and idols. They want something material. Of course, people say, well, this helps us to pray. Well, God says, don't have it. And if he says, don't have it, don't have it. We don't need it. It's not for us. And so no carved images. Now he says, he says, I'm a very jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy uh, to those thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, does that mean, because this is a tricky one, does that mean then that God, because of the father's sins, that he will punish future generations because of the father's sins? No, I, I don't really think it means that because uh, in Deuteronomy uh, 24, In Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So is that contradicting that? No, it's not. Because we, what we just read in that Ten Commandments there, I think what that's really saying is that those who persist in following in their father's sinful footsteps, they will be the ones that will be punished. Those who do not do that, they will be the ones who will be blessed. And it is a, a thing that we see continually where somebody will either follow in their father's footsteps in the sins of their father or they'll follow in their father's footsteps in the gracious and the goodness of their father. Generally speaking, there's exceptions to every rule. And so it behoves fathers especially to leave a good example to their children because they're being watched. And oftentimes they will be followed. Now, you can read through the kings of the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, and you'll find that principle again and again and again. But sometimes the sons is even worse than the fathers before then. But God says, I'm a jealous God, and I won't have it. In number 16, which you don't need to turn to, Moses' first cousin, Korah, and Abiram, and others, and Dathan, they came against Moses' authority. They were of the tribe of Levi, and they were helpers to the priests. But if you read the story, they actually wanted to be the priests. And Moses obviously wasn't allowing that because God wasn't allowing it. And they rebelled against Moses and said, you're taking too much on yourself. Uh, who do you really think you are? You still think you're a prince over us? 
And, uh, you know, we're all spiritual. You read it, we're all spiritual. And Moses says, well, I'll tell you what. Well, let's, let's, just, let's just prove this, whom God has chosen. So he says, I want you and, and those of you who are following you, there was actually 256 who were men of renown, who were leaders. He says, I want you to get your golden censers with some fire in it. And he says, I want you to bring it before God tomorrow. <laughs> and as they did, Moses stood up and he says, right. He says, if, if these, who has challenged this, if these die a natural death, then you'll know that I'm not the chosen one here. But if the earth should open up and swallow them up, then you'll know God has spoken. And do you know what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed up Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and all their families, their wives, their kids, everybody, opened up and just closed up again, and they were gone. And then a fire came out of God and struck the 256 rebels, and all of them died. But notice in the story, if you read it, Moses said, separate yourselves from the rest of the congregation, from the rest of the people. He said, separate yourselves from these three. Separate yourselves, because God's going to deal with them. So you make sure you're not near them. And they did. They separated themselves. <laughs> and whenever they saw the earth opening up and closing, I'll tell you, that, that, that was frightening to see that. But do you know what? And I don't mean to end this tonight, but you know what? <laughs> the very next day, after seeing that, the very next day, the whole congregation came against Moses again. <laughs> the next day. And God says, well, that's it. I, I'm going to wipe all of them out. I, I, truly, I've had enough. I'm going to wipe all of them out. And Moses interceded for them. But a plague went out and began to strike them. And Moses said to Aaron, you better get your golden censer and you better run between the people because if you don't, they'll be all dead. And 14,700 of them were died by the time Aaron got his censer and ran between them. I'm telling you that to say this, that God says, separate yourselves from them. I'm not going to judge you because of that. In fact, Moses said, don't judge the whole congregation because of one man. So God says, okay, tell them to separate themselves. But he says, showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You ought to thank God if you have a godly heritage. If you had a mom or a dad or a parent or even grandparents who loved the Lord and who served him in every way they could and that was passed on to you to emulate and you picked up the baton and you ran with it, then thank God for those who came before. Thank God for it. Then he said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, or your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. The only day that God hallowed was the seventh day to be set apart. Now notice here that it's referring back to creation. God set the standard even in creation. 
Human beings are made not to work seven days a week. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is, is this is the only nation on earth that was given this commandment. All the other nations around them didn't believe this. In fact, the Romans thought the Jews was lazy people because they had a day off. <laughs> Honestly, they did. And others thought they were lazy because they had this Sabbath. This Sabbath means rest, this rest period. But God knows that we cannot go seven days a week, 24-7. Just it kill, as I said this morning. You can do without food longer than you can do without sleep. Sleep deprivation is a, is a tool that tortures you to, to crack people, to break them. Because when you, when you have no sleep, let me tell you, you can't function. Your brain begins to close down. Your body begins to close down. And on that day, he said, nobody is to work. Not even your animals. And I said this morning, even if you read on further into Exodus and into Deuteronomy, even your fields, even your land, every seventh year, do not work it. Let it rest. It's going to be good for the land if you let it rest. Well, of course, we never obey that. Sure, we don't. We work that land as, as much as we can get it. And we put fertilizer on it. We just keep feeding that land. He says, no, don't, just, just let it rest. Let it rest. And, you know, the 70 years of captivity of Israel in Babylon, you know what 70 years? You know where the 70 came from? Because for 480 years, they disobeyed that commandment to rest the land. And God says, for every seventh year you disobeyed me, I'm going to put you one year in captivity. So 7 into 490 is what? 70. So that's where the 70 years comes. But I want you to notice something here. Apart from physical rest, apart from that, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. To keep it holy. The purpose of the Sabbath rest really, truly, apart from physical, is spiritual. It's to keep it holy. It's a time of rejoicing, not just a time of rest. Jesus, by the way, is our rest in the New Testament. Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, I'm meek and lowly in heart. And so it's a, a time of rest, a time of rejoicing, a time to bless the Lord, a time to rejoice, a time to uh, recharge your spiritual batteries. And it was for them too. It was meant to do this for them. And so it was a good thing. It was a wonderful thing to do. And uh, in, in Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, 23 to 27. Now it happened that he, that's Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to them, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Because to them that constituted work. By the way, the Pharisees added 39 rules onto the Sabbath. <laughs> 39, imagine. So why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was indeed and hungry and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Biathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> See, the Pharisee says, well, you're made for the Sabbath. Jesus, no, the Sabbath is made for you. He says, it's a different way of looking at things. In Luke chapter 13, verse 10, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could no wise raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you're loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Jesus did a lot of healings on the Sabbath, by the way, just to get their backs up and to rile them. He really did. Remember the man, he put mud in his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam? That was on the Sabbath. He didn't need to put mud in his eyes, but he deliberately did that because just bending down and making a little mud pie, that was work according to the Pharisees. He deliberately did that. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, there are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered and said to him, hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. <laughs> oh, you got to love Jesus. <laughs> he had an answer for every one of them, hadn't he? Really. Now, the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath to this very day. Our days is governed by the Gregorian calendar. So our day is from midnight to midnight. The Hebrew calendar isn't like that. The Hebrew calendar is from sunset to sunset. So <laughs> the day of rest for them, which in our Gregorian calendar is Saturday, is from Friday night to Saturday night, Friday night sunset to Saturday night sunset. That's the Sabbath, right? But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead on the seventh day. And the seventh day was the first day of the week, right? And then it became, in time, it became the Lord's day called the Lord's Day because that was the day he resurrected. In fact, the first time he met his disciples after the resurrection was on Sunday. What we call Sunday. The first day of the week. And by the way, and I've said this before, you, you know, even as Christians, we, we talk about the weekend. I'll see you at the weekend. And we say that just as a matter of form. And I do. We all do. But for believers, Sunday's not the end of the week. Sunday's the beginning of the week. And guess when you should put God first? Not at the end of the week, but at the beginning of the week. Start your week off with God. That's why it's good to be in God's house on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath, as it were. And so it's a good thing to do. It's right and proper that we should do this. In Acts chapter 20, 
verse 7. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. And so there is an established pattern here. Even, even though there were Jews, and Paul certainly was a Jew, <laughs> Pharisee of the Pharisees, but once he got saved and, and Jesus rose from the dead, then things began to change. And then on that first day of the week, the Lord's Day became known as, that's generally when Christians came together to worship. In fact, in Revelation 1 and 10, when John was an old, old man, and all the disciples, all the apostles, they were all dead and gone. So that shows you how long this was ahead of time. And it says, John says, I was in the Spirit when? On the Lord's Day. So even though there is no... God didn't give the Sabbath to the Gentiles, but he gave them to the Jews. There's nowhere in Scripture you'll find where this was proposed for the Gentiles. It was for the Jews. But it became a problem in the early church whenever Gentiles were getting saved because the Judaizers, those who wanted to keep the old laws, were saying, well, you should worship. Not this is the day to worship. The Sabbath day is the day to worship. No, no, we're worshiping on the Lord's day, which to us is Sunday, right? And so if you were to read farther on, for instance, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and so forth, you'd find there's other things come into play regarding the Sabbath, things or do things they couldn't do. I know the Pharisees added on to it, but God laid some laws down. But as far as that's concerned for us, that old Sabbath is gone. It's all gone for us. It is the Lord's day. But still, it should be a time for us, as it was for those believers, early believers, a time for us to rest, to come together. Now, I know that some of your jobs, you can't, there's times you can't do that. I'm not being legalistic about this. But generally speaking, it's the day when believers come together to corporately worship together. It's a good thing to do. And if we only do it half on Sunday, guess what? You're only getting half the instruction from God's Word that you should be getting. You're only taking half the opportunity to corporately worship as you should take. I just thought I'd better just put that out there. Being the nice pastor as I am. <laughs> and so the Sabbath is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The Christian Sabbath, as we say. Now, here's the thing. The Apostle Paul adds a wee twist to this. In, in Romans chapter 14... In Romans chapter 14, and, and well, let me, let me just read from the, the very beginning, Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes about doubtful things. So, so Paul here is getting to some areas. He says, look, there's some things that is, is clear cut, but there's other issues that are not so clear cut. So he says, you need to be careful how you address these and how you handle it. And he talks about food and eating and drinking and so forth. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now listen to this. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. 
Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. And none of us lives to himself, no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So that each of us, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or to cause to fall, uh, a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now, remember that the Gentile believers, they come out of paganism, worshipping, sacrificing unto their gods, and then after they sacrificed unto their gods, they would sell that meat in the marketplace. Right? Now, Paul says, look, I don't believe in gods. Only believe in one God. So he says, I could eat that meat, wouldn't bother me. But others who've just come out of that old system, if they see me eating that meat, they'll think, well, I can eat that. But the trouble is, I have no conscience about it, and they have. And if they go against their conscience, they're going to be sinning. So he says, I don't want to make my brother sin, even though it wouldn't be a sin for me, but I know it'll be a sin for them. Are you still with me? Yeah. All right. I know am I convinced of the Lord Jesus there's nothing unclean in itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of the food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ, for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work for, of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So, in other words, he's saying, listen. You may say, well, look, he's not talking about immorality here. You may say, well, I can do that. It doesn't bother me. I have no conscience about it. I can do it before God, and I'm not being condemned. But I know my brother can't do that because he will feel condemned because he has a conscience about it. So therefore, I'm not going to do it. In front of him, I will not do this. I will not stumble my weaker brother. I'm strong. He's weak. I'll not stumble him. He says, that's the law of love. If I'm really walking in love, I don't want to hurt my brother. Simple, isn't it? That's what he's saying. So therefore, we better go quickly here. Oh, I'm only touching these things. Really, honestly, you're scratching the surface. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Ha-ha. Our late little sister, Bloomfield. Hmm? Clifford and Stephen's mother. He's just gone to the glory just there a 
couple of months ago. That was one of her favorite verses. Wasn't it, Clifford? She kept saying, ah, you see, I honored my father and my mother, and that's why I've lived a long, long life. <laughs> and she said that once, she said it a thousand times. She really, truly believed that. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth in that. But did you notice it says, honor your father and your mother? It doesn't say love your father and your mother. Well, why would that be? Because it's a given that you ought to love your father and your mother. But the reality is, some fathers and mothers are not very lovable. Some of them are not lovable at all. Some of you perhaps haven't got a good mother or a good father or both. And they weren't lovable. And you find it difficult to even love them. So honor them. Find a way to honor them. You say, well, I, I struggled. How, how am I going to honor? Find a way. Even, even if it comes right down to saying, you've only ever one mother. You've only ever one father. They're the ones who conceived you, gave birth to you. They're the ones who brought you into this world. So at least you can honor them for that. You can say, thank you for bringing me into this world. That's the least you can do that. There's always a way to find to honor your father and your mother, even if you're struggling to love them. You can honor them. You can find a way to do that. Honor your father and your mother. <sighs> Isn't it interesting that cults, religious cults, one of the features of a religious cult is, is to separate their people from the mothers and their fathers. And even false religions like Jehovah's Witnesses, if you break away from the JWs, they will completely and utterly disown you. There'll be a separation between you and your family. And, and cults, particularly, will make it their business to separate people from their parents, from that influence that they would have over them. And so... You would think maybe it's just a, a normal thing to say honor your father and your mother, but God has got good reason for saying this because he knows there's society today. Listen, we have, a, we have a government in Scotland today that is driving a big wedge against parents and children, that is trying to pass a bill to have anybody but their parents to be in control of them. Do you ever think you'd live to see that day? in the British Isles, but it's happening. We have the no smacking rules. We have all kinds of rules that are driving wedges between parents and children to rack and to rip up families. Now, thankfully, there's people fighting that, but it's even being, the fact that it's being proposed lets you know there's a reason for these things to be in the scripture. And now it says, you shall not Murder, it says in my new King James. The old King James says you shall not kill. Murder is a better translation because that's really what it means. <clears throat> uh, it's inevitable that, uh, that there, there, there will be killing because there's going to be wars. It's inevitable that there will be killing because if there was not, if we didn't have armies and we didn't have police, we didn't have rule of law, then there would be complete anarchy and then there will be many more murders than what they are. Uh, so, so somebody has to have the authority to kill. So when it says, 
even but not killing, it means not murdering. In other words, not killing unnecessarily or illegally or doing it just for the fun of it or doing it just out of badness. That's murder. Murder. Thou shalt not kill. You shall not murder. And so it's a good rule to have, isn't it? You shall not murder. In, in Matthew 5, listen to what Jesus said here, verse 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Ah. You see how now Jesus, even under the law of love, is up the ante. So Jesus said, it's not just enough. Don't think, it's just enough to physically murder somebody. You can murder somebody in your heart. You can murder somebody by hating them. This is what he's saying. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, or oh, you idiot, you empty head, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Whoa. Jesus talking about hell fire. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Absolutely, sin. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Wow, that's some standard that Jesus is raising up, isn't it? First John chapter 3. You don't have to turn to all these, by the way. First John chapter 3. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother, John says, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I, I, I don't think we have reached that standard. I, honestly, I, I don't think that we even think that way. But, but Jesus and John is pointing this out. Being angry without a cause hating somebody, your brother. It's equivalent to murder, Jesus said and John said. So that's a big thing, isn't it? You shall not commit adultery. Huh. See, all these things is a reflection of God. God is a, a life giver. So we shouldn't be life takers unnecessarily. God is faithful, so we shouldn't be unfaithful. 
God is truthful, so we shouldn't be liars. So these things, in a way, reflect the very nature of God himself. You shall not steal. In Ephesians 4, 28, let him who steals steal no more. <laughs> Is that actual stealing? I think so. Rather than going out and getting a job, some Christian wasn't doing that. They're out stealing. <laughs> let him who steals steal no more, Paul says. You're breaking the commandment. Don't do it. But we can steal in other ways, can't we? We can steal time from our employer. We can be lazy, we can be indolent, we can do all kinds of things. We can pull sickies when we're not sick. We can do all kinds of things that is actually stealing from our employer. But we shouldn't do it. It shouldn't be. You shall not steal. And Exodus 22, just over the page a little bit, Here's what it says. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. That seems to be if you sneak in the doors of darkness and somebody kills you, well, fair play, you broke in their house in the middle of the night. But if you come snooking around during the day and somebody kills you, maybe you weren't going to break in, but they killed you anyway, so... They're going to be in trouble. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, a thief, if he's caught, he should pay back more than he stole. And if he hasn't got that, then he can be a slave, a servant to somebody, to that person he stole from, until that's paid off. If the thief is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. In Deuteronomy 19.19, and I'm going to have to go very quickly here because time's going on. Ah. This is interesting. This concerns the next on the list. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ah, false witness. Lying about your neighbor, particularly in court, particularly when legal matters are involved. If you ever go to court, what do they say? The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Nothing else, nothing less will be sufficient except the truth. So to go and lie against your neighbor at court is a bad thing. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, uh, where did it say that? It was 19. Somebody help me here. What did I say that was? 1919. Thank you. Ah, Deuteronomy 19, 19. Well, let me read from verse 15. 
one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Old Testament Hebrew law was you had to have at least two witnesses. One witness wasn't enough. And that's a good thing. That's a fair thing. So somebody couldn't be put to death because of one witness. There had to be at least two witnesses. So there was fairness. But notice this, if a false witness arises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests, and before the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and, uh, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him that he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put the evil away from among you. Isn't that good? So, let me, let me put that in real terms. So, if a false witness in court, say, comes against you and tries to do it, say, to get a thousand shackles out of you, but they lose, they're found to be false witnesses, guess what? They get found a thousand shackles. What they try to do to you, then that's done to them. If somebody tries to take them to court, in order for them to die, for them to be executed, then if they're found to be a false witness, then guess what? They're the ones that's going to die. They're the ones that's going to be executed. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eyes shall have no pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Boy, that would, uh, that would tear up the court scenario, wouldn't it, eh? You'd be scared of committing perjury right away there, wouldn't you? Because <coughs> if you're found to be wrong, you're in the t guess what? You're going to be the one going to go to jail for a very long time. And so perjury, lying against your neighbor, was a big thing not to do. Because God is a God of truth. The devil is a liar and was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies, Jesus said. And we don't want to reflect him. We want to reflect our Heavenly Father. And then the final one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Notice that all the other commandments are, are, involve action. But this one involves thought. You shall not covet your neighbor says that or the other. Because the thought is the ancestor of the deed, isn't it? If you keep thinking it long enough, you'll find a way to do it. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting more of something. But what is wrong is wanting what somebody else has got and taking it from them. That's what's wrong. Coveting what they actually literally have. Rather than say, well, well I would like more, but no, I want what they have. And that starts in the mind, and then it can lead to action. Uh, let me just quickly give you this example. Thou shalt not covet thy... Oh, there's wee Evie, she's going well tonight. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. You see, that's exactly what King David did, wasn't it? Uriah the Hittite lived, lived more or less next door to him. And when Uriah the Hittite was his, one of his soldiers was out fighting his battle and his war, guess what? David was ogling his wife and coveted that man's wife and lay with that man's wife. 
And it started in his mind, but it led to the action. It led to the deed. And he broke the commandments, didn't he? And then remember Ahab, his summer residence. And next door was a beautiful vineyard that didn't belong to him. It belonged to Naboth. Just a farmer had a beautiful vineyard. But Ahab so wanted it. He coveted it. And, and he asked Naboth, he said, I'll buy it off you. Naboth says, no, I, I don't want to sell it. It's mine. It's in my family. It's mine. Go away. And he went away. He told his wife. And he was in a big huff. Remember that story? He was in a big huff. He lay down and put his head to the, to the window or to the wall. He was a big huff. And, he, and he, Jezebel came in and said, what's wrong with you? Well, the, Naboth, he wouldn't sell me the vineyard. He said, don't you worry, I'll get the vineyard. So she raised up two false witnesses. And they said that Naboth blasphemed God and he's a traitor to the king. And they had a sham court and they killed him. And then she took the possession and gave it to him. You see how the coveting in the mind began to work through to the action? And what happened? He stole. He murdered. He coveted. He's, I mean, he's breaking a lot of rules here. He's breaking a lot of Ten Commandments, isn't he? David was the same. And so it's hard not to just break one without breaking another one. And so they shall not covet your neighbors anything. Don't covet what they have. Yes, if you want more, fine, get more, but not what somebody else has got. Not I have to have actually that literally what they have. No. That can lead you to all kinds of problems. And so they're basically on list number two. What was number two? Oh, thank you. How did I miss that? How did I miss that? Thou shalt not take the name. Thank you, darling. And they're great for wives, isn't it? Sitting in the front row can just point you out. Ha! Taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Which is number three, actually, but nevertheless, we'll not argue about it. <laughs> you've got to correct the preacher you've got to be accurate now. <laughs> well two things first of all there's lots of blasphemy and cursing and swearing using the name of Jesus and the name of God just as an expletive it's just horrible it just, it just jars you when you hear it doesn't it as a believer because they're talking about our Lord they're talking about our Savior. And I know they don't even think about it. But I tell you what, they don't think it's in Muhammad. They would think twice about saying that. But when it comes to Jesus and God, it's just out there. It's just everyday language. And it's awful. But it means more than that. That's bad. But how many causes over the centuries has been done in the name of God? Hmm? where somebody had a cause and they put God's name on it to try to make it right the Spanish Inquisition was done in the name of God and people were murdered and tortured in the name of God and it wasn't right the crusaders slaughtered people in the name of God and it wasn't right and so we, we have a little bit of history, even within Christianity, that wasn't right, that wasn't Christ-like. 
but it was done in the name of God. And because they felt we'll put God's name on it, then it must be right. And it wasn't right. <coughs> and God doesn't like his name used that way. Because what happens, it puts people off God. How many times have you heard somebody saying, well, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with God. You've heard that a thousand times, haven't you? So we need to be careful that we attach God's name, what we attach God's name to, because God doesn't like his name taken in vain. He hates it. Because he doesn't want that reflecting on him. He's not like that. He wouldn't like somebody doing something in your name without your permission that wasn't like you, that you didn't want to happen. Sure you wouldn't. You'd be angry. Well, God gets angry at that. He doesn't want his name taken in vain. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.